Hello and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today, Ben and I will be discussing Step 10, Continue to Take Personal Inventory, and When We Were Wrong, Promptly Admitted It. Hello, Ben. Are you uh, ready for uh, Step 10 today? Yeah, I sure am, John. Looking forward to it. Okay. Um, It's kind of funny. I know what the step says, but I feel like I always have to read it nowadays because I don't go to meetings where they read the steps at the beginning of every meeting anymore, so I don't have them quite committed to my brain cells like I used to, I guess. Yeah. But this one says, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I'll just kind of start a little bit on the the conversation is... um, I always felt like this is a step that really kind of worked its way into my life where I really feel like it's something that I do on a very regular basis. I do not um, actually take a written inventory at the end of every day. I might not even be consciously aware that I'm thinking about it, but it's just become such a natural part of how I behave now that... um, I guess I, I just have a conscience, and I need, to, and I, and I, I'm very aware of my interactions with other people, and it's no problem for me to look at where I was wrong and 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 try to set the set things straight. I mean, almost like I have to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of my nature now to do that, and I don't think that it comes natural to me to do that. I think it's something that I learned in AA. Um, not necessarily partly by reading the books, but everything in AA, the, just the experience of talking to people, going to meetings, everything has kind of taught me to do that. But there's a lot of good stuff in here. And, and, and it's also interesting to note again that, you know, I read the 12 and 12 and I read the big book. And again, the big book was all religious. The big book, the more I read it, the more it sounds like a Bible. Mm-hmm. Whereas the 12 and 12 was was not so much into the God thing. It was, uh, mm-hmm. to me, I thought the, the 12 and 12 seemed pretty rational. Yeah. Yeah, what are your yeah. thoughts about this? Well, when I talk about this step in meetings quite often, I'll talk about this is a step that keeps me coming back to AA. Um, I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, and I heard you talk to Jeb about it. The steps on some level kind of happened to me as I stayed in meetings, mm-hmm. and I did the things that AA kind of asked us to do before I ever attended AA, but the problem was that I would quit doing them. So, I mean, I guess step 10 on some level is it being in AA and step 10 tells me I need to keep doing that stuff. I, I had that all or nothing thinking where it was like, once I learn this stuff, once I clean some stuff up, then I should be good to go. And this says, no, you've got to stay in this process and keep doing it. And and that's that's of great benefit. And um I'm kinda like you, but I'm kinda not in that I think I think I did this kind of stuff even when I drank. I mean, I'm sure you probably did too. Like think about all the remorse and feeling bad the next day and all that stuff. And yeah. I mean I was constantly taking my inventory, but then avoiding doing anything about it. Um or, you know, I did. I apologized to a lot of people before I ever went to AA too. I was practically a professional apologizer, but um, being in AA and this process of self-reflection in the steps helped me kind of reform that from like a blame and shame to like just taking a good hard look at it and resolving some of it and finding that middle ground between letting myself off the hook and beating the crap out of myself. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Well, some some things that I got from um, AA, and, and it comes out of the 12 and 12, and I, I'm not looking at it right now, but um, there's a line in there that says, when we're disturbed, there's something wrong with us. Now, a lot of people that I've, I've, I've been in meetings a lot of times when, when this has come up, and a lot of people take offense to that. They, they, for some reason, they, they hear it thinking that there's something defective about me or I am, I'm wrong in every instance. Anytime I have a conflict with another person, I am wrong. Um, I don't see it that way. The way, the way that I see it is that if I'm disturbed, if I'm bothered, there's something I need to pay attention to. That's how, mm-hmm. I, that's how I'm viewing it. There's something wrong. There's something I need to take care of. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. It doesn't mean I'm bad. In fact, I might be right. I might, mm-hmm. I, might be in a, I might be in an argument or dispute with someone and be absolutely right, but emotionally I'm torn up about it. And I think that that's what it's talking about, is there's something about my emotional state that needs to be looked at. There's something wrong there. And so I kind of operate that way now, where I'm very much in tune with um, my, my emotional state. Doesn't mean I correct it right away. You know, sometimes I, I go way, that, that's another thing it talked about in this book. It talked about self-restraint, which I'm terrible at, and, and I, I need to work on that. But, um, but, I, but I do always, I, I'm very aware of that, of where I am emotionally, and I do stop and try to figure out what the hell is going on with me. Mm-hmm. Who do I need to have a conversation with and, 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 and that kind of thing. So that, that was a big part of the program for me. Yeah. And again, I think this is about empowerment, that part of it. I wish it was worded differently, but mm-hmm. I agree with you that when, when this gets talked about in meetings and from the very early going, I was able to kind of translate that, I guess. But if you don't mind, I'll just read that little paragraph yeah. quick. It is a spirit, spiritual uh, ax, axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. Again, yeah. I, w- I wish it was worded differently. Like, yes. Because I, because I can think, and I have I've had this tendency, especially when I was early on with sponsoring people. It's like I was so quick to get everybody into, well, what's wrong with you that this is bothering you so much? Whereas I think, well, what I learned from counseling and active listening was that there needs to be a period of time where you listen to somebody talk about the issue and let them vent and talk about what they need to talk about about it. And then you can get to the point where you break it down and say, well, what's really going on here? What's all going on? Kind of like you worded it. Whereas I think sometimes in AA, we get so quick to avoid making, to avoid giving somebody rationalization and justification for how they feel. And we jump immediately right on, well, what's the matter with you that this is going this way? Whereas if we can do that a little bit different way, it is about empowering us. Because then it goes on to say, if somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. Again, I wish that was worded differently. Yeah, because not necessarily is, are we always in the wrong. Right. But but it's I think what it's asking us to, or what I think about therapeutically that goes on, it's asking us, why why did you give up your power? Why are you, why is this something mm. that is bothering you so much? Why, um, you know, different parts here too talks about stopping fighting anything and everything. Mm. And and it's about why, you know, you need to look at why these things bother you so deeply or this issue bothers you so deeply. And I think if you dig into that, you can, it's almost like fourth and fifth step work. You can really see what's going on. I mean, somebody walks up and punches you in the face, you're probably going to feel a little angry. But, um, you know, 
then it goes on, but are there no exceptions to this rule? What about, quote, justifiable anger? Mm -hmm. If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are folk. <laughs> <laughs> for us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. Okay, I can get behind this maybe in early sobriety or early recovery that it's best to maybe just let you know not go there. Right. But but on some level, when I read this paragraph, it is avoidance. It is it is like whatever you do, don't you dare feel angry. Yeah. And I think. I think what, uh, in my mind, what when you get to a really good place in recovery and it's really working and it's flowing, you get to where you can acknowledge your anger. And mm-hmm. I don't have for me, I don't have to bottle things up now until I become so mad that I say something over something that has nothing to do with the issue at hand. It's it's I can I can resolve my anger. I can tell someone I'm angry at what they did. And and not do it in an angry tone. Like I think in Al-Anon, they say, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Like my reaction to expressing anger doesn't always have to be a stereotypical way of what we talk about anger. Like, you right. know, we've got we've got a little girl now and I there's gonna be times where she angers me yeah. when she gets older. And I don't have to yell at her. I can say, Hazel, uh, what you did made me uh, I felt angry when you intentionally did something that you knew I didn't want you to do. Yeah. So I don't have to go, what the fuck are you doing? You right. know, I mean, it's it's about learning how to handle anger in a healthy manner. And I think it starts, you talked about this, it starts with being able to acknowledge it and realize mm-hmm. that we're feeling it on some level. Yeah. And, and that anger isn't necessarily a bad emotion. I don't want to feel it no. all the time. But if I deny it and I stuff it, it is going to come out somewhere, some way. So right. I, can, I can agree with this paragraph, especially in early recovery. But I don't think we can keep doing that throughout yeah. our recovery. Maybe it's healthy just to recognize when we're angry, kind of like a barometer that, okay, wow, something's going on with me here, you know? Because yes. um, I, you know, before I ever was, was ever involved in, in AA, um, I think I always had a bad, bad temper when I was a kid. I was very impatient, losing my temper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just always that way, but I never really stopped to examine that. I, I, I never, I never really tried to understand what was going on, and it really wasn't until I was in AA. But they, um, in AA, there's always this analogy of it being an illness. So every time, no matter what's going on with us, when we're talking about recovery in AA through our literature, we always. Um, refer to it as some sort of an illness where there is something wrong with us. There's, you know, something that needs to be treated. So it's like anger is just another one of these. Um, it's like an, they, they kind of refer to it as almost like an illness. It's like something that's killing us. Not necessarily so, though. Mm-hmm. I think that I think anger is just we wouldn't be. I mean, we wouldn't be human. I mean, you got it. You got things make us angry. And sometimes um, maybe we need to feel that anger for whatever yeah. reason. But you know, like everything, it just needs to be in its proper context and understood for what it is, I guess. And you don't want to lash out at other people and be crazy. Yeah. But well, it's like this uh, social justice movement or Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. or things like that. It's like, how do we handle our anger and how do we move forward? And not to turn this into a politics right. show, but I mean, it's it's uh, you know. A lot of, lot of great changes in society have happened because somebody got so pissed off they couldn't take it anymore. And, right. and, how, and how they did that depended on how, you know, 
successful they were lots of times, you know. Right. Right. So it's it's uh it's to me it's anger is not a bad thing. It's it's uh like you're saying, it's uh something to be checked out and looked at and utilized properly. And when you find out what's really underneath it, I mean you take the action and it's just a feeling. It's it's like any feeling. Yep. Yeah. Someday when we write new um liter- new recovery literature in AA, I think that we should have a version that leaves out all the spiritual stuff and references to it being um all the spiritual stuff that's in here, having spiritual advisors and having a right. spiritual sickness and blah blah blah, spiritual axioms and yeah, you don't really need all that. Can't we just call it what it what it actually is and not and not use all that language? All the um, woo woo. Yeah. We have entered the world of the spirit. I mean, sometimes I like it, but sometimes it's just too much. I mean, yeah. and especially I think if well, when I was talking to Jeb in our conversation um, last week. I told him, I said, that, that I liked spirituality when it's presented in, oh, literature or if it's, it's presented in writing because it's just a way of communication. It's a language that we use with each other. But then he said, yes, but you have to be taught that language. Mm-hmm. And he got me thinking. He says, yeah, I thought, yeah, you're right. And that's mm-hmm. the whole problem with it in AA is you have to be taught the language. So when we're, mm-hmm. when we're sitting in AA meetings and we're talking the spiritual language of AA, the newcomer doesn't understand it right off the bat. You know, right. I remember being frustrated with it myself. Right. So in that sense, why do we even bother with, with that language to have that people have to learn it when you could just go ahead and talk plainly? You know? Yeah, that's that's one of my frustrations, I think, with AA. It's like we wanna we wanna make sure we're always paying tribute to this book and the language yeah. they use. But but really if we're really wanting to reach people, talk about our experience and like uh translate it. To, so that newcomers can understand it too, because it's otherwise it feels like a club that you have to get in. Yeah, and, and you have to learn. You do have and, to learn the lingo. You have to learn yeah. the language, and it's not necessary. But I know why it happened because, well, the book, the, these books are written by the the founders. I mean, the, they were who are very gone and dead now, and, yeah. and they would be like in their hundreds right now. So yeah. these are very old books, and um, of course they they. Um, had they had religious experiences these were people who really firmly believed that there was a intervening god who was responsible for their sobriety and they but not were, all of them no i guess not all of them you're right about <laughs> two that. or three of them didn't you're right you're right about we that. don't hear about that that's true story. that's true <laughs> Sorry, I but i guess you're right though but i guess the ones that got away with the the writing but they really believe that so anyway all of their language is like that but um, that's what's so weird about AA. We've evolved from that. I don't believe that people, maybe they do believe it. I don't know. It's hard for, that's me as an atheist. It's hard for me to believe that people really believe that there's actually a God that does all of this. But I guess they yeah. do. They really do that, believe that. Yeah, I think it makes people, <laughs> it makes it makes people feel better. And the thing that scares me about it is drinking made me feel better too. It didn't mean yeah. it was a good solution, right? So just right. because something makes you feel better doesn't make it uh, a good thing or true. But right. again, that's everybody's right for sure. Yeah. But things like like you said, um, where it talks about continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and yeah, fear. That's good. Now I think that's good. But then it says when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove yeah. them. Yeah, you don't necessarily now, have to do that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I suppose for some people, the the just asking to have it removed helps them let that stuff go. So yeah. I mean, and another way it. you could do it, I guess, like um, when you're selfish, angry, afraid, whatever, 
instead of asking God to remove it, you could just be quiet mm-hmm. and reflect, or you could just yeah. you know meditate or whatever. I guess there's other different things you can do, and maybe yeah. when you and maybe if it works, it's because that's what the people are actually doing when they're at when they're asking God to remove it. What they're really doing. Okay, they, they, maybe they, they are actually asking a deity to do this, but they're also thinking, reflecting, getting quiet, mm-hmm. kind of centering themselves, and, yeah. and, and they're doing all of those things. And that's what's probably really doing it. I don't know. But. Yeah, that's, that same part of the brain gets activated that is, yeah. you know, comes with serenity and peace and meditation and the end of yoga. And I mean, yeah. it's all that same area. So. But you know, Ben, there yeah. was a time I actually did all of that. I actually did ask God to remove things from me. I did do mm-hmm. that. I, you know, my sponsor told me, ask God, just go home and ask God to yeah. do it. And I did. I really would. Yeah. I'd go home and I'd get on my knees and I'd do all that kind of stuff. Um, that's so weird. I did. I really did that kind of stuff. I don't yeah. know what I was doing, Ben, but I guess it kind of, it was keeping me sober. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. This is really bizarre that I kind of, I got away from all of that. I never really was. I don't think I ever really believed in a in a real mm-hmm. God, but I never really questioned it either. Well, you put your trust in everybody and did what they told you to. Yeah, yeah. I tell you, I still struggle sometimes. I think with um, being an atheist. I mean, I, I I'm comfortable being being an atheist, but I think it. I think every once in a while, when I really stop and think about before I realized I was an atheist, that it really kind of is weird to me that I that I either believed or said or did mm-hmm. things for so many years that seem so bizarre to me now. Yeah. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of a yeah. strange thing. Oh, I, I can remember I had my big uh, born again period of time and I was on my knees praying about stuff all the time. And yeah. Yeah. And that stuff did make me feel better for a while. I, yeah. I got to be a self-righteous asshole too. <laughs> but, um, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody who believes in God does, but, you know, I never asked you, how did you ever be, get to go from being a believer to an atheist? You know, it wasn't, it was kind of like uh, recovery for me. It was kind of, it, it wasn't a moment where I was just like, I don't believe this shit anymore. It was just kind of a slow yeah. question of it. I, I, I think when I first, I suppose it was, became a born again Christian, I was so depressed that I just wanted some relief and I was drinking a lot, obviously. And, uh, you know, that was a big thing for me. It, re- it really did make me feel better for quite a, <clears throat> quite a while. I mean, it wasn't a white light experience, but I definitely, it helped me a great deal, I thought, at that time. But I kind of have a, a different perspective on why I did that then. But I, I just, when you're in such a dark place, any little crack of light seems so bright. True. It's easy to make such a deal of it. True. And, uh, I mean, I was ready to go to Duke University to go to divinity school. Like, wow. I had applied and all that stuff and thought I was going to be a pastor. And of course, I was still drinking off and on. But um, it it was never really a moment where I'm like, I don't believe this shit. It, and it actually, the it started when I was researching it more and more and reading more about the history of the books and how they found the different Gospels and the ones that got left out. In the history asked, of the Bible, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, very interesting like stuff. That. Yeah. And, and the more I learned about it, the less I believed. And then after a while, it was just like... I became more interested in this kind of therapeutics type stuff in psychology. And it's right. just, I, I understood more why people believed and, and how these stories came about and yeah. what they were like. Of and But I know what you mean. There's times where I'm just like, you know, 
sometimes people pull out that argument, well, like, well, how did all this started? And I mean, sometimes my whole brain is like, yeah, I don't exactly know. Big right. Bang, well, started the Big Bang. I don't know, but I know I don't believe in some uh, magic sky god making right. all this, you know, whatever. But And I, I certainly don't believe that it matters whether I believe that or not. Um, yeah. I think it's good to have hope. I think it's good to... You know, I know a lot of people in this waftish type movement don't like anything that has to do with woo or living right. in the mystery. But it, but when I say living in the mystery, it's like I want to be skeptical. I want to yeah. continue to search. And, and like you said, it's the seeking where we find. And and it's uh, – I don't need shortcuts anymore to make yeah. me feel better about something. Just One make thing something. I, I was thinking about that too about, you know, you just talked about how people in waft might not like um, different things. But – what I really like about the agnostic movement within AA is the diversity of experience. It's crazy, man. We're all over the map. There yeah. are, I mean, there are people in that we'll see in Austin who want absolutely nothing to do with the steps. They think the right. steps are just bullshit. You know, right. they don't need them. They don't like anything to do with all the traditional AA. Then you have other people who are just very, very into the the actual big book. Right. I mean, they they believe the big book should be read and studied and followed and precisely. Um, you got all you got people even in our agnostic movement who've had the back to basics experience yeah. and are and believe yep. in that process. Yeah. Just you, it runs the gamut. I, mm -hmm. if there, I don't know if there's anything. If there's anything that we have in common, it's probably that everybody has the freedom to express their own individual path. Yes, and we don't pray. You know, we yeah. don't. We don't have. We're, we're more secular in that way. But everybody is totally free to to reject or accept their path. It's uh, and I hope I'm not just saying this because I'm being grandiose about this whole idea behind Waft, but it just felt felt like everybody was more respectful of everybody's right to have their own opinion about it. it. And and there was plenty of like debating, and you know, some people right. got heated that first day about the whole idea of spirituality, but but it felt like people took it less personal. And I, it feels like what I would hope AA was in the early going or at its best point. Right. Like, but now it feels like if if you bring up anything that even goes slightly against anything in the book or any of our sacred texts. It's like, wow, you're not a member or you yeah. really must not have read it right. Or um, I don't know. I just would like to think that it's what AA could and should be. I, I mean, again, so this isn't perfect either, but no. I mean, it's, it's just respecting took, everybody's right. If you took the religiosity out of traditional AA and the worshiping of the books, that's the, that's the biggest thing about the traditional AAers. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the uniformity of, of the people's experience is to line up with the book. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants, to, wants their experience to line up like that. Where, whereas in our agnostic movement, it's, we don't care if we line up you know, right. with, with each other's experience. That's that's a huge, huge difference, I think, um, between the two. And I think that AA would be better off if it was more like the agnostic groups where people were more more tolerant of other people's experience and 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 embrace that diversity of experience. I mean, mm -hmm. we still have that common bond as alcoholics who right. believe that by gathering together and supporting each other, that we help each other stay sober. You know, we have yeah. that bond, but... Anyway, yeah, we unify over that. I mean, that's what I think. You know, we talk about unity in AA, and it's it's unity. It is not uniformity. It's AA right. could be a wonderful, diverse place where and should be, I think, and is meant to be. But it 
the way it is, it's very much like religion. It's like when you talk to these people who are fundamental about the book, you bring up something in the book that contradicts the book, and they get angry about it. But it's mm-hmm. like, like you said, when you're coming from a secular agnostic perspective, some of it I think is great, and other parts of it I don't think are that great. So I don't have to rationalize and justify the parts that aren't so great. It, right. it makes me appreciate it more, actually. Like, yeah. I don't have to play mental gymnastics and say, well, yeah, well, you know, the stuff that was written in the Old Testament was just there as law because Jesus was coming to bring the law to our hearts. And, you know, it's when you get talking to like dogmatists that way in AA about that, too, it's like, because I'll bring up, you know, like, well, what about on page 164? It's kind of the postscript, all of it that says, we realize we only know a little. This is all just suggested. Um, well, they, they didn't really mean that, you know, it's, but well, Mark, I don't know. Mark C, when I was talking to him, he, he, he was interesting because he has that history of, um, studying the Bible and everything. Mm-hmm. And so he, he draws, uh, parallels between the big book and the Bible and how it's revered and how the big book is revered in AA and how the Bible is revered by evangelicals mm-hmm. and that, um, he respects both books and he knows both books. But if you if you know the books as literature and the background and study it in the context of his time and take take out of it and not just worship it, I think I think you can get something out, out more out of them than if you just kind of like like you know try to make up excuses for the contradictions and so right. forth. I mean, it's kind of yeah, silly, for sure. But. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was reading here, too, in the big book about, um, we will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes, exclamation yeah. point. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, as your brain gets away from alcohol for a while, you're going to have less craving. But it's That's what I was going to say. There's got to be there's a some psychologic, thought- there's yeah. gotta be a physiological reason, psychological reason for that. I mean, I know the same thing is true with smoking. You know, when you stop smoking... Um, at first, it's like all you can think about is that you're. You right. want to, first, all you can think about is I want to smoke, and then all of a sudden you think right. about you think about you're not smoking all the time. Same right. thing with drinking. You're thinking about I want to drink, then you're thinking I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking all the time, and then over a period of time, suddenly your brain is no longer thinking that you want to drink or you're not drinking. Right. You know the addiction for whatever reason is out of your brain. Right. On a daily basis. Yeah, your body's basically reaccommodating to the fact that you're not going to be giving it alcohol on a consistent basis. Uh-huh. You know, and it's readjusting. And, and it it's seems like, miraculous. It seems like, wow, yeah, I yeah. didn't do a damn thing. It, yeah. God must have just taken it all away from me. Right. But really what it happened be- is just like time kind of heals all things. Maybe. Yeah. Well, and these things feel like miracle to us yes. going through it because this is a, if we're going to say it's a disease. It's a disease of delusion and perception. We hear that in meetings, and I can agree with that. It is our perception is screwed up when our brain's physically addicted. Yeah. So it's 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 yeah. It feels like a miracle, but because it feels like a miracle, it doesn't make it a miracle. Right. And if it is, if AA is so successful at sobering up so many people, it doesn't really meet the definition of the miracle. So either we're really great at getting people sober in AA, <laughs> or you know what I mean. Right. Like if something happens all the time, it is not a miracle. Right. It's like it defeats the definition of it. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's uh, right. I don't know. It's yeah. and and that my concern is this magical thinking, and then it also makes it sound like uh, that is a miracle of it. We're not fighting it. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality. We've not sworn it off. Instead, the problem has been removed. 
Well, guess what? I'm sober almost 10 years now, but every once in a while, sure. that crazy thought will pop into my brain. Sure. And, and the way these texts talk about it and make it sound like it will be removed and you won't feel that way again. That's not always true. No. That's, there's like an echo effect in our brain where it just pops in there once in a while. That's and I true. think it's, it is important that we don't shame the hell out of ourselves about that because that's, that's our brain. It's just like a, a yes. fragment of what's left behind. I actually went through a time where um, I would be afraid in meetings to say that I was thinking about drinking because I would think that people would think that I wasn't working a program or I was they put some kind of judgment on me. But um, there's nothing wrong with that. I still, after 28 years of sobriety, um, there have been times when I've when I have wanted to drink. Now mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that it gripped me to the point where it was an obsession, but it's come. I've come pretty damn close to yeah. being obsessed about it. Um, I've taken the action of talking to people about what I'm thinking and feeling to help me get through it. Um, but yeah, I've had some, I've had some close calls, especially my first two years of of sobriety. Um, but, um, yeah, I can remember being probably about three years sober and a friend and I went out and visited a friend in Chicago and we went out to eat. And this would not have been my M.O. before at all when I went to Chicago. We went out to eat, and they were sharing a bottle of wine. And I didn't even really drink wine and couldn't have cared less. But there was something about that night being at this very small restaurant that was not a party scene, so it wasn't even really a trigger. And I did not necessarily want to drink, but I felt so uncomfortable and so out of place. And I just told my friend, I go, can I have the keys back to your apartment? I think I'm just going to go home and stay, and you guys stay out tonight. No big deal. And she said, yeah, no problem. And I just felt so awkward. And I just, I had to get out of there. And mm-hmm. doing what I'd learned, I don't need to stay somewhere I'm uncomfortable. But it wasn't that I wanted to drink, but for some reason, I mean, I'm sure it had something to do with that, but I just felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. And but, I don't have so many of those days anymore if I end up at a bar for a concert or something or something. It, it doesn't even really pop into my mind. But yeah. in the earlier, earlier years, that would happen. Yeah. Usually I'm pretty safe. Um I'll tell you the story of my close relapse, and I hope I haven't ever told this on the podcast before, and just because I hate to keep saying the same stories over and over. Yeah. But um, what happened is I was I was sober for two years, and for whatever damn reason, I got into my head um, the vision of a bottle of apricot brandy. I think mm-hmm. I was at a um, gas station where there was a bottle of apricot brandy back behind the the counter. And God damn, I couldn't get it out of my mind. All I could think mm-hmm. about was that bottle of apricot brandy. And I wouldn't tell mm-hmm. anybody. Right. And I started thinking, I thought, okay, I'm going to go buy a bottle. This is crazy, apricot brandy. Because I think the only time I ever drank it, I was in high school. But anyway, mm-hmm. and it's not really that great. But that's what I was wanting. But I, I thought, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to buy a bottle of apricot brandy. And I'm going to um, take it home. And I'm going to put it in my coat pocket in my closet. So it will be there just in case I need it. Was I was mm-hmm. telling myself, all this shit's going on in my brain. I'm not telling anybody about it. Right. This is going on for weeks. This is crazy right. crap. Well, anyway, finally, one day I walk into a liquor store ready to buy a bottle of apricot brandy. Mm-hmm. And goddamn, it was like, it was like I was, I was, I just had to go do it, you know? So I was in that goddamn liquor store and I started getting like really, really nervous and scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked around, I saw all these bottles glistening and everything. I just I just felt like, oh my God. I just I just really felt scared. So I I, I went home 
And then I got on the phone. I called my sponsor at the time and I told him what I just did. And I talked to him. And then wouldn't you know it, that whole mm-hmm. obsession was gone just by simply right. talking to someone about it. But that was the closest I ever came to a relapse. The second time, though, was after being about sober, maybe 25 years or whatever. It was a couple of years ago. And what happened was um, I realized I was an atheist and I started questioning everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. I put all my ideas were on the table. And um, I was researching different treatments for alcoholism. And I ran across the Sinclair method um, mm-hmm. on the internet. And I was intrigued about the possibility that there was a pill out there that mm-hmm. I could take and enjoy all this great beer that we have in Kansas City. I mean, it's everywhere, Ben. We've got like right, crazy right. beer joints everywhere. Well, um, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I was really getting to be obsessed about this whole thing of wanting to drink this beer. And so finally, same thing. Right. I told somebody what I was what was going on in my brain, and, and it kind of worked its way out. But those are the two closest times where the where, I mean, I've had many times where there's been passing thoughts, but those were the times where they were really um, obsessions where where right. that was kind of dangerous for me. But they happen, and it's yep. not, it's nothing to put a judgment on. It doesn't mean that you're good or bad, or you're working a good program, you're not working a good program. These things will. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, unfortunately, I mean, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you're the second person that's told me about that with the naltrexone, and you. Know, <laughs> Wanted um, to drink on it, wanted yeah. to do it, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, the other person I just told, you know, do, do you want to be a sober person? They're like, yeah. I'm like, do you, are you happy being a sober person? Yeah. And then, so then I was like, well, why do you want to toy with this and fuck around with that then? And they're, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm like, maybe the Sinclair method's only good for that very small percentage of the population that's very chronically addicted but right. does want to stay sober but, you know, it's like it's, yeah, nothing to mess with if and you want to And you know what's so- really weird about it anyway? A lot of the people that do do the Sinclair Method end up going entirely abstinent anyway because for whatever reason, the you're not getting from alcohol what we like to get from alcohol when you're taking right. that stuff. Yeah, so that's a problem. probably what I would want to do. I probably would not want to take it. Yeah, right? Just quit taking the pill. Yeah, that's the danger. So it's nothing yeah. to mess around with. But if somebody is really chronically addicted, I, I can see it being a good option. But yeah. it's, and that's that's why I think it's important to talk about this stuff. And I'll bring it up in a meeting about having a craving, you know, at, even as having some years under my belt, because it's sitting alone with that thought is the danger. It it's, is. There's nothing wrong with having a thought. It's what you do. It's like it's nothing wrong with having an ill thought of someone, but it's what you do with that thought too. And if you sit, and to me, that's the whole idea behind AA. If you sit alone with something like I did for years, thinking I had a drinking problem and that I was the only idiot who couldn't control it, you beat yourself up, you feel shitty. But if you go and you just talk to somebody else and they say, yeah, I felt that way too, you're like, oh, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I mean, that really, that's AA in a nutshell, it right? Is. We talk to each other and it's like, oh, I felt that. I felt that. And then it feels better. So it's that's why it's, it's like uh, we got to take the shame away from that. And it's, again... That is why I feel okay bashing and beating some of the stuff that I read in the book because it makes it sound magical and it makes it sound like you won't ever think that way again right. as long as you keep your spiritual condition fit right. and this and that. And, and I agree and that's that if, where you put judgment on it. That's the problem. As long right. as you're in fit spiritual conditions. So here's the thing. Someone says, I've been treated like this before, Ben. I've, I have yeah, been oh, in yeah. meetings. Oh, John, did you pray today? Did you pray? Yeah. 
Well, that's why right. you didn't pray. I've never known yeah. anybody who who went out and got drunk who prayed and right. shit like that. And it's like they put some kind of judgment where it's your fault because right. you weren't doing the program right. You're not close enough to God. You're not in fit spiritual right. condition, blah, 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 right. blah, blah, blah. And again, all that stuff is okay stuff to check out. But when it becomes, oh, well, you would not feel that way or you would not think that way if you were doing everything right, then it just becomes this perpetual self-blame. And it's like, Oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm the fuck up. Yeah. Everybody else has life figured out, and I don't. Right. I want to I segue that into this one portion of the, the step 10 and the 12 by 12, because I think this is part of our delusion as well. Um, second paragraph, it says, A continuous look at our assets and our liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are uh, necessities for us. Okay, agree with that. We alcoholics have learned this the hard way. Now this, more experienced people, of course, in all times and places have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. So again, wow. it's, kind of, it's kind of idolizing other people who do this better than we do. Like, we're the fuck-ups. Yeah, what did it From, say there? What did it say there? Read that again. Other people? Uh, more experienced people, of course, in all times and places have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. Oh, so yeah, it's like right. saying there's these people who do this kind of perfectly. I doubt it, though. <laughs> For the wise have always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. Okay, I can agree with that last part of it, but the part where it makes it sound like there are these people who are so... Uh, well-versed. And we hear this when people talk about normies, too. Like, they don't have this problem. They don't have that kind of thinking. I think they do. It's just not necessarily about alcohol. Right. So it's, it's again, that goes along with that tone. And why I wanted to say that is because it's this tone of perpetually beating yourself up. And it's always, well, maybe, I guess I just let up on the spiritual part of this program. And then some asshole in the meeting will say, there's not a spiritual part of the program. It's a spiritual program. Right. You know? It's the right. whole thing spiritual, and it's just, yeah. It's it's all it is set up, and okay. The good part of it is, it is always important to take a look at ourselves. I agree with that, and we got to watch out for rationalization, and justification. But it feels like a setup to perpetually always blame and shame yourself for being a broken person. Like, right. well, obviously, if that didn't go right, it's because you didn't do something right, or. Maybe we need to go backwards. You need to redo your force. Mm. You wouldn't be feeling self-pity right now. You Or, you know, the tone of what it says in here, too, about if you've really resolved your past, it won't be haunting you anymore. I think that's bullshit. I mean, there are degrees of your past haunting you. It's not about getting it perfect and having it forever be done. It's about putting it in a different perspective, I think. Right. And, again, the reason it angers me is because – we don't need to set ourselves up to always be wrong. That if we could, if a more honest way would be to say, sometimes your past isn't quite done with you. There's some mm -hmm. things left to resolve that are going to come up that you think right. you maybe have dealt with. And it's maybe going to happen. Be prepared for it. But instead, our literature sometimes carries this tone that once you do this, you won't feel this way. Or right. once you're halfway through with the ninth step, these promises will happen. Right. Oh, but if you work for them, right. you know? So right. it's, yeah. My fear is I just don't like how it always sets you up to be able to blame yourself. Right. Now, it's always good to be able to go back and take a look like, okay, could I have done something different in that situation? Yeah, That's good. But to go back and be like, whoa, shit, what did I fuck up? I yeah. got to go look through all this shit, and I'm not working the program right, and I wouldn't have that thought of drinking if I was close to God in the right way. And if it's – these aren't tasks to no. fulfill. 
it's a process to get involved in, no. I think. No. And it's, uh, yeah, sorry. I kind of ran. No, there. no, that's good stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I think what I like to think about, like when I'm doing step 10, um, I don't really think that alcoholics are really that different from any other human being in the world. I really don't. I think that we all have, you know, selfishness, self-centeredness and um, anger problems and resentment problems. And, and maybe it's, it's, it's for us, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of do buy into that. I did drink because I liked to change the way I felt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, if I do carry around a lot of resentment and anger you know, I, I have an emotional state that I might like to change. And one good mm-hmm. way of changing that is to drink. So there might be a good reason that for us to have a tool where we can put these kinds of emotions in check. Yeah. But, but, I, but that's the only difference. Everybody has these things. And maybe yeah. some people even go through this process without even, even really realizing it. You know, and they're, if they're decent people, they yeah. admit when they're wrong and so forth. Yeah. But, but I, um, yeah, one thing about that that always bugged me, I'd like say alcoholics drink because they like the effect. Well, everybody likes the effect or right. else they wouldn't drink alcohol, period. Right, Even if you're somebody who drinks one or two beers, you just have tap water. That's true. I mean, you do but, drink but for the, the effect. Yeah. But the point is, I think on some level, uh, developing a substance abuse problem or alcohol problem or becoming an alcoholic, however you want to say it, it's about emotional regulation. And I think... Whether you believe in the disease concept or you're born with a predisposition or whatever, but if we don't have good role models in our life that teach us how to cope and how to self-soothe in healthy ways and how to get through things emotionally, and some of that includes how we teach our kids to process their feelings, work through their feelings, acknowledge their feelings. If we don't have that, I think then subconsciously our drinking is a way to resolve those feelings and not deal with them. Right. And, you know, we, we hear it in meetings all the time, you know, you walk in, you're, I, do, I don't like it sometimes when I hear it, but it's, it's symbolically, it's fairly true. Like, oh, I started drinking when I was 15. So emotionally I'm kind of a 15 year old. Well, the point is that we never really had to go through anything and work through anything and go through the pain of it and get to the other side of it right. and see that we could make it through. Because for many of us, anytime we felt some discomfort, we drank, whether it was before we were addicted or whatever you want to say, but we drank and never really had to cope and learn that it could be okay on the other side of it without working our way through it with alcohol. We drank for the effect, like other people drink for the effect, but is is the difference that um, we depended on it to, to get through life? Is that the difference? And, and to I, the, Until where it just kind of became the obsession and compulsion and physical addiction eventually? Right. Yeah, and I can get behind that if somebody said we drank for the effect of soothing our emotions. I mean, you know, most people aren't drinking just to get through something or just to feel different or just to cope with being in a room with other people. Right. Um, So, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I just remember when I was, um, like, my first six months of sobriety, I was forced to go to this community addictions program. It was part of my probation. And I'll never forget the counselor when I met with him. Um, he said, yeah, you've got a serious alcohol dependency, I think he said. And I, that sounded so weird when I heard that. I said, wow, wow, I'm really dependent upon alcohol. This is like, mm-hmm. and I thought, the more I thought about it, I said, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I really was. I did mm-hmm. depend on it for a lot of things. But, right. but you're well, right. I, I was, I was kind of had my little, you know, tests like when people were kind of fighting things when they'd come into my office. And, you know, I don't know if I have a problem or not. And I, 
I would just say, well, does, does it scare you to think about not drinking? Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm like, well, you maybe have something you take a look, have to take a look at then. Like, if somebody told me I couldn't have steak the rest of my life, <laughs> I'd probably be like, oh, crap, I really like a good right, ribeye. Right. It's rare, but I suppose I can give it up. Yeah. But if, you know, at that time when I was still drinking, if you said, oh, you can't drink it. Yeah, it like created fear in me. It's like, oh, it does. shit. I, I remember that. That was a, that was a frightening prospect. What? Never drink again? Mm. How am I going? How am I going to do? How am I going to do that? I just I just mm. didn't quite get it. But um, but I knew I had to because mm-hmm. I mean it was absolutely insane what my, what happened in my life through drinking. Right. As, as I know yours right. was too. Oh yeah. But still, there was a part of me, and probably there still is. I I mean, I would I I wouldn't mind. I wish I could drink, but mm-hmm. but I would want to. You know, I would want to drink. Um, a lot, probably. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, well, and I, I kind of proved it to myself, too, because when I would try not to drink so much um, during different periods of my life, I would go out with people, and if it wasn't going to be a night where everybody stayed out, I just wouldn't drink. Yeah. Like, I'd rather – I knew I didn't want to just have a couple. I didn't want to have a couple. I'd right. be like, oh, I'm not going to drink tonight then if we're not staying out. Right. So, I mean, to me, that says I had a problem, too. It's like I didn't, I didn't want to have a couple. I want to have a bunch. So step ten is a maintenance step. We're supposed to ma- we're supposed to be maintaining our sobriety mm-hmm. um, by, I guess, you know, for me, it's just all about checking our emotional state, checking our motives, mm-hmm. um, keeping our relationships in order, admitting where we're wrong, making amends. Um, you know, it talks about doing a spot check inventory. I don't think mm-hmm. you have to actually get pen and paper out. I think that you can just kind of sit down and and just kind of mull over in your brain what what happened. In a, in a in in a day, um, you know most of my most of my issues, but not all of them, are work related. Um, yeah. Where I have you know problems with people at work, but not always. Sometimes it could be just people. It could be anything. Sometimes sometimes little little things within AA or my friends yeah. or family and th- different things like that. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's it's good. It's like do everything you've been doing up until now, you know, and yeah. keep doing it. Yeah. In steps one through nine. And it's, it is good. It's good to, and uh, to be honest, I've never sat down and taken a paper and pen at the end of the day. It's like, I don't think but, anybody does. Anyway, it does say in here that it says many of us do anyway. It doesn't say we all do. It doesn't say you have right. to. I kind of misunderstood that because I used to think, I used to um, say in meetings sometimes, I'd say, I think this is the one step that hardly anybody actually really does because mm-hmm. I thought that to really do it, you had to. You had to really at the end of every night. You had to um, do an inventory every single night, right? And mm-hmm. I thought nobody does that. Maybe yeah. there are some people who do. But well, um, and again, I think getting involved in this process and like you said, it's it doesn't take long for me to realize these days when something's bothering me and what is something I need to take a look at. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. Geez, thirty minutes. Something's usually resolved, or I do something about yeah, it. It's same not usually here. something that sits around. Same and here. and I. I do. I thank AA for that. And, I you do, know, too. And I think, I think it's a strength that, you know, some people honestly don't have that. There are some people who are not alcoholics who do not have the capacity to say I'm wrong about no. anything no. or to or, or even have any empathy for other people and how other people feel. So I am glad that I have that. And I and I, and, and I do. Um, I do practice that a lot. Yeah. I mean, yep. I, I have absolutely no problem with it um, right. because I understand that if I'm wrong, it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm bad. Even right. if I've done something bad, it's the, I don't, I don't internalize it and, 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 um, 
as that's me, I mean, I just see myself as a human being where we're all doing this kind of crap. Every person does this kind of crap. Nobody, yeah, yep. nobody is a saint. It makes me think of something on page 91. Um, do, do, do. In all these situations, we need self-restraint. It talked oh, about a bunch yeah. of situations before. Honest analysis of what is involved. And I underline this and I put yes, yes, yes. A willingness to admit when the fault is ours and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. We need not be discouraged when we fall into the error of our old ways, for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not perfection. Now, if the tone of the books were always like that, it's very understanding, it's very self-forgiving, but it's that's that is it right there. And and I like to think that when you go through this step process, you get to that place where you well, I've found that I have a humility about myself because I've learned to look at my own crap and not be burdened by it, but yet not forget it. And something about that allows me to be forget- more forgiving of others. And the book even says, I yeah. think, you know, they're just people who are spiritually sick as well and trying to make their way through the world. I mean, I wouldn't put it that way, but that's the truth yep. when, I'm, when I'm in a good place and in a good state of mind. I'm glad you read that because I, I wanted to talk about that too, the whole thing of restraint, because that's one area where I'm really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not very good at practicing restraint, but it is extra hard to do nowadays with Facebook, email, instant mm-hmm. messaging, text messaging. When they wrote about restraint of tongue and pen in the big book, you know, at that time, um, to you'd, you would actually have to write a letter the, re- the, the pen, you have to physically write a letter and take it to the mailbox and mail it to somebody. Right. So, I mean, the restraint, you know, you have a little bit of time to think about restraint, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I think even on the phone, you might have had to call the operator and have them put, yeah. connect you to somebody, you know. Yep, one so, ringy-dingy. So, you know, now it's like, I'm going to go on Facebook and tell everybody off, you know. Right. And people do that. And yeah. then people feel like really, really crappy about it too. Right. Or you're at yeah. work and you say, "God damn, they they really pissed me off over there in accounts payable." I'm gonna I'm gonna let them know exactly how I feel. You I'm know? gonna CC their manager. <laughs> I'm gonna CC their point. manager. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm gonna I'm gonna he, he CC'd his manager or me, and that pisses me off. I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know. So it's like you know the restraint is really important nowadays. You know, and I I would think um, I don't know how I would have handled it. As, um, you know, when I was first getting sober, if they would have had the internet back then. Right. Um, boy, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's so important just to take a day, at least on stuff like that, you know, like work stuff or sending out an email. It's just like, okay, let us sit there in drafts and before I send it or something. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's definitely good. And, you know, the part of this, too, where it talks about ceasing fighting anyone and everything. That's, that's, good, um, that's good advice. But, again, I don't think... I don't. I think sometimes it gets taken so far in the rooms that we are hyper tolerant to things that go on in the room sometimes too. Because there is some really nasty shit that goes on sometimes in meetings. Like one time, these guys were just talking the crudest stuff about women, and you know, like I'm sure I was thought of as being some self righteous liberal whatever do gooder, but it was like. It was on and on. And like this one guy finally said, you know, the only problem I have in relationships is getting a woman out of my bed the next morning. God damn it. And then like this went on for like 25 minutes in the meeting. And finally I got pissed, but I I didn't say it pissed. But I was just like, you know, we need to be careful in this room because there are women in this meeting right now. And I go, alcoholics and addicts, studies would show that 80% of women in recovery have had some form of sexual abuse 
upon them. So we need to be really careful how we talk in here. Now, okay, love and tolerance is our code, but sometimes something needs to be said, you know? And I didn't say it like a dick, and I'm sure some people are like, oh, aren't we, Mr., you know, whatever. But And nobody said anything to me during the meeting, but after the meeting, I had about five or six women come up to me and say, thank you so much for standing up for, you know, that in the meeting. So sometimes it feels like AA... We're so careful to mind the traditions and love and tolerance is our code that some really fucked up shit just gets like some guy was making fun of gay people in a meeting one time. And I said, I stopped him and I said, I really don't appreciate you saying that. Please continue your share. But I feel it may, I feel really offended when you talk like that in the meeting. I'd appreciate it if you didn't. That stuff is wrong. Um, I, my old home group um, was a men's group. And believe it or not, there wasn't a lot of anti-women talk there. There wasn't any any um, disrespectful yeah. talk about women like that. But there was a time, for whatever weird reason, people were making gay jokes a lot, you right. know, and it, and they're just making these stupid jokes. But there were I knew there were gay people that came to our group, and they would sit in the meetings at that. But all of a sudden, they started leaving. The gay people left our meeting. Right. And I remember I said, uh, I was talking to an older guy at the meeting. And I said, why, why did all these guys leave? And he said, well, all the, all the, um, the gay bashing. I said, but, but those are just jokes. He says, yeah, but if it was directed at you, you wouldn't think it was so funny. Right. And it was, it was kind of a, a teaching moment for me. And I realized how, how horribly bad that was that kind of humor you don't do that you don't you don't laugh at other people if you want to make fun of somebody make fun of yourself but don't 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 do that with other people and especially in aa where it could be someone's life on the line right, right. everybody has to feel comfortable and welcome there we've got to be totally inclusive we have a yeah. real responsibility to that in aa um to be very respectful of people and, and right. the diversity of of, of others well, I, uh, I, well, I'm gonna fess up here. I did that at a meeting once. Not what you're saying, but I, I made a joke at the uh, expense of somebody in AA who most people in our town don't really care for that much. Yeah. And I, I made the joke at his expense, and he wasn't at the meeting. It was totally shitty of me. Yeah. And I, I felt like shit almost immediately after I did it. And then I went back to that group the next week and apologized for that. And I said just what you said. I said. Um, this needs to be a place where everybody feels comfortable and doesn't feel like they're going to get made fun of by somebody somewhere else. And I go, I totally violated uh, everybody by by telling that joke last week, and I feel really bad about it, and I want to apologize to the group because this does need to feel like a safe place. And, uh, you know, it That's was... interesting. Uh, I remember I did something like that once. I actually went to my group, and I... And I apologize for some damn thing i can't remember what it was it might have been something similar to that where i i just felt really bad and i just and i and i went to the whole group and i just I just, I just apologize for being a jerk or whatever yeah i guess that's all yeah. part of step 10 too you know it's like yeah you know i i screwed up and you know right. I shouldn't have said what i said right but it's good that we can do that so many people don't have that ability but then again those people Here's the thing about these th- these steps too. I guess I shouldn't be patting myself on the back about being such a goody goody two shoes. The reason that I do this is only because I feel it. I because I because I I need to because because um if I if it didn't bother me is no big deal, right? Right. I wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, like um when we were talking about making amends, 
I didn't make amends for like we were talking about the example of running over the stop sign in the city park, right? Right. Well, I wouldn't make amends for that because it didn't bother me for whatever reason, you know. Right. I did it. I, I it didn't bother my conscience that I ran over the the stop sign in the city park, and I didn't really ever do that, but I did things similar to that, and I didn't ever make right. amends for those things. But for someone else, if it bothers their conscience, they wouldn't do that. Well, that's how I feel about this program. I do it because if it bothers my conscience, then I need to do something about it because then it's a threat to my sobriety. But if it doesn't bother my conscience, why I don't have to worry about it? I, I mean, you know. Right, right, and it's that's probably going to be different for different people, yeah, it'll be and, different. We, and we don't need to press that on other people. We but don't. it's it's like it's not that I say, well, it doesn't bother me, so screw it, I'm not going to do that. But it's it's more like we we gain that consciousness, we gain our own sense of conscious and it's like if something's bothering me it is a cue that i need to do something about exactly. it. Exactly. And and that's and that's where exactly it's important. it's it's a cue that there's something wrong that you need to look at and do take some action on. Yeah, it's like a sliver, it's like a sliver under the skin and it's festering right. and it says pay attention to me. Right. Do something about this. And if you don't, you're going to have a problem. Right. And and that's what happened to me when I made that bad joke in that meeting too. I mean, I felt immediately bad for it. The interesting thing was there was probably four or five dogmatic people in that meeting who really, really disliked that guy as well. And they came yeah. up to me and said, that was a really good joke. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but uh, it was awful of me to do it. Yeah. But, so it's, uh, I don't know. And it again, it's like sometimes I think we get off on – pretending or posturing in meetings that we've got this all figured out or like I really know the book or I know this where it's something simple like that that okay our, our the 12 by 12 says pain is the you know the beginning of all spiritual growth or whatever the and it's so it's like that pain and then modeling that not that I'm trying to model that behavior for anybody else in that meeting but like even with someone I sponsor like to tell on myself and talk about how bad I fuck up sometimes and then how I made it right. That's how we all learn from each other. And when we share that stuff in meetings, it's good. And and that's why, again, that's why these rigid meetings really bother me because it's it feels like so much posturing and it is so not human. It is yeah. just like, I don't know. It's It's not that I go about and I fuck things up just so I can be great at apologizing, but right. I mean – those are the moments that really matter. And I find like, I feel, I feel something. I feel, it feels good, like to make something right. Right. And to be able to look at yourself. And I actually called that guy up that I made fun of in that meeting too, and apologized to him. That could have been something where it could have been like, except when to harm others would right. you know, cause harm to them. But I, I assumed it would get back to him because we all know things tend to fly True. around AA pretty quick. True. True. So, Yeah. And him and I had a better relationship after that, too, because we talked on the phone for a long time about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of making fun of the fact of how long he talks and that he says the exact same thing over and uh, over and over. And he's like, well, I do do that. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, so. But it, it was it was a good moment and it was it was growth. And it's because I had that little sliver festering and it said, you need to pay some, pay attention to something here. You know? Yeah. And it is cool to be able to to pay attention to that voice anymore. Because again, I think we talked about this last time. I ignored those little voices for a long time that said, pay attention, do something here. You need to take some action. You know, uh, that, yeah. that, that was almost, that was the symbolic part of being an alcoholic for me was I just, I never dealt with anything that needed dealt with. I didn't either. Um, I drank as soon as I got off of work and stayed drunk for the rest of the night. 
So I never had to process anything that went on during the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never had to think about it. You know, what, whatever was going on with me, you know, right. yeah, it's that it's that's that that was my life for that was how I drank. But right. so, yeah, I think that I, I like this step. Now, when we get into step 11, I might have a trouble with that one because I don't think I do step 11. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was a time. I mean, if step 11, if step 11, OK, there's different ways of looking at it. I guess if step 11 is all about trying to find peace and serenity and calm, then I guess I do it. Mm-hmm. But if step 11 is meditating, mm-hmm. you know, is in trying to seek um, some kind of awareness through meditation, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't really do a practice of at a particular time of the day to actually meditate. But mm-hmm. I, might, I think I'm going to try for a little while before we do yeah. step 11 just to see how it goes. Oh, yeah. I think it can be great. Um, obviously, I'll have more to say about that too, but it's to me, it can be, you know, for some people, it's going for a bike ride. For some yes. people, it's go- it's going to a movie. It's it's about self-care. It's about, like, doing things that nurture your, I'm not going to say soul, but, I mean, it's that nurtures that part of you that needs nurtured. Yes. It's like taking active time for yourself to center yourself, calm yourself. Some people go garden. Yes. Some people mess with their plants and that stuff is deadhead so their flowers. And, I'm, yeah. I'm deficient in that area right now, and I need to do something about that because I, I used to love to ride my bike and run. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was especially running was like meditation because next thing you know, your body is just doing. You right. know, you get in a rhythm and you're not even thinking about what's going on. And you kind of clear out a lot of thoughts, right. a lot of negativity, and you just, yeah. you just feel positive and happy after you run. But man, I don't do that anymore because I spend so much time on my computer working on AA Beyond Belief. Right, right. Well, it's it's uh, like you said, it's something we've got to pay attention to and we got to do yeah. for ourselves. It's it's another tool. It's a meetings and the book are not the only tools we have. Yeah, I there's agree lots, with that. There's lots of ways. There's sometimes where I know people who've been sober thirty years who didn't go to meetings for two years, but yeah. they they read their daily stuff and they had their stuff they did and they were still connected with recoveries type stuff. Or yeah. It's uh, yeah, I don't know. It's well, there's I'm gonna lots. really get try to get serious about step eleven um, mm-hmm. before we talk about it next month, just so I yeah. can, because I think there is some benefit to it, and I am going to incorporate. I think maybe it would be a good good um, time for me to start walking at least and getting some yeah. exercise again, because, boy, yeah, one of my uh, one of my coworkers that I used to work with, she um, she had a a meeting that she did at her home that was mindful recovery. And they did meditation, and it was strictly a meditation meeting, and it was very Buddhist-like. And, um, yeah, really cool. So yeah. there's – I know at uh, more diverse places than Lincoln, Nebraska that have more of those, but, um, yeah, it's cool. I also wanted to say about Step 10 that I, I don't like the sentence where it says we have a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. But I get behind that sentence because this whole – um, step is kind of about maintenance, right? right? And it's about it's about uh, staying on top of things so that we're prepared when things do come up. Um, it's not, you know, I used to think well, if things were good, then I don't have to worry about you know anything. But right. but the thing is, I need to stay on top of things so that God. I mean, I just had a friend's sister just died, forty eight years old, out of the blue. They had no idea what happened. Mm. She just was found unconscious and she's dead. So. Oh. Um, you know, there are things that are going to come up in our life that, that you, you can't plan. I mean, you can plan for them. Right. We know they're all coming, but you just have to do the work to be prepared for them when they come up. Right. So that's that's a lot of what this is about. 
Yep. And that's, that's why it means a lot for me because again, I'm not saying I had everything figured out before I came to AA, but there are lots of times I did all these things that are very similar to what AA asked us to do. And the thing was, I just quit doing them because I thought, okay, I'm good now. Yep. And then eventually I drank and eventually I felt shitty and eventually I took it out on other people and eventually I hated myself again. So, well, um, so you, I, you, you told me that you are going to go, go to be in Austin. That is the plan as of right now. I think my wife's going to take work off that Friday and I'm going to fly out super early Friday morning and then fly back Sunday night. So great. Yeah. Well, I have not bought my plane ticket yet or my ticket to the, to the convention, but that is the plan. Well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm driving down with, um, three other people from Kansas city. We're driving in one car and I think I'm getting there on Thursday, I think, and then I'm yeah. leaving on um, Monday morning or something like that. So it's gonna be quite a quite a stay down there. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to it more and more. Um, there's one thing I'm gonna I'm on two panels. Mm-hmm. One I'm gonna be on is gonna be called "What Is Waft," and I'm not quite sure what they're gonna be talking about on that. But right. what I, I what I want to talk about is what. I envision for the move the secular movement in AA. And so I'm going to talk about Waft Central, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like a service organization. We get people, and I'm going to talk about that too. Yeah. Um, as a segue, I, I, let me mention this right now. If you're in Ames, Iowa, and you want to start an agnostic meeting, send us an email. If you're in um, Perth, Western Australia, send, oh, wow. send us an email if you want to start an agnostic AA meeting. Or if you're in Gloucester, Massachusetts, because we've been contacted by people in those three places. They, they contacted WAF Central um, people in those three areas that want to start agnostic AA meetings there. So if you're in Perth, Western Australia, or Gloucester, Massachusetts, or Ames, Iowa, and you're an agnostic atheist or free thinker and you want an AA meeting, send us an email and we'll connect you with somebody. But that's what I want to talk about. That's WAF Central. WAF Central has a phone number and it has an email and it's got pamphlets and it's got um, a meeting, um, whatever you call them, meeting things, formats and stuff like mm-hmm. that. If you want to start an agnostic AA meeting, there's all kinds of materials to tell you how to do that. There's like a really state-of-the-art uh, meeting directory where you can locate meetings wherever you are. Mm-hmm. We're working on a uh, we're working on a page on a on a deal where if you are if you want to start a meeting someplace where the one doesn't exist, there's going to be like a map where you can go and you can look. And if you don't see a meeting in your city, you can place a pin on the map, okay? And then put your contact information there so that the next time someone comes along from your city and they want to start a meeting there, they can find you. And we're going to try oh, to cool. meet, meet people up like that. So that's what WAF Central does. It's a real sur- it's a service organization for agnostics, atheists, and freethinkers in AA. You've got that. Then I'm going to talk about that. Then I want to talk about AA Beyond Belief as sort of the grapevine of of agnostic AA. But I don't want it to replace the grapevine because I want us and and agnostic AA to to get more involved with the actual AA grapevine. Mm -hmm. Um, So AA Beyond Belief is just a place for us to kind of get together and share our experience, strength, and hope and form a community is how I kind of see see that. And then what's the other thing? Oh, the convention. And then the convention um, would be the place where we all get together every two years and share ideas. And I think from that convention, there's a lot of energy where people go out. 
there's going to be another couple hundred meetings start over the next two years, probably. Yeah. If, if, if what happens this time happened and anyway, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, No, but no. I would do that, that can, that thing. That's what I'm talking about. Then the other one I'm on is about how to get along with traditional AA. And I'm probably like the worst person to be on that panel because I never even go to regular AA meetings anymore, but I do go to, I'm going to talk about um, getting involved in, in general service, I guess is what I'm going to talk oh, about. Oh yeah. There. You've been great at that. I, I, uh, I commend you for that a lot. And for anybody else listening, it's, I mean, I was blown away when we went to Santa Monica. It was great. And just yeah. uh, like we were talking about earlier, the tone of, I, it just felt so easy to talk to everybody and it felt easy to share ideas and it felt easy in the workshops to just say what was on your heart and to even go to the, you know, we had round the clock meetings basically the whole time too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the plan here. There's yeah. always going to be a meeting going on in one of the rooms and just to, yeah. The, the different, smoother, kinder tone in general. I mean, there are meetings like yeah. that that are traditional meetings, too, that I go to. But it's um, it, it was just very nice so like heartwarming. Yeah. Plus, people, there's a lot of excitement and energy there about AA. Like you never see at any other AA convention, as far as I'm concerned, where people are actually starting talking about starting meetings or learning how to start meetings and stuff like yeah. that. That, I think, is a fascinating because people come there and a lot of them have never been to an agnostic AA meeting before and they learn right. about it. They get excited and they go off to their town afterwards and they start, right. they get, they get a, a group started. So there's a lot of real good stuff like that gets done. Um, there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to um, the executive editor of the grapevine will be there and she's going to mm-hmm. give a um, workshop on how to submit articles to the grapevine. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go to that because I want to learn how to do that. But I want to encourage people to start writing agnostics, atheists, and freethinkers. Start start um, writing to the grapevine, submitting their stories, and commenting on other stories that are there. Because if we write in, in large numbers, the grapevine will post our, our stuff because they want to re- they really want to reflect the membership. And I think what's happening is that we read the grapevine and we look at it and we think, well, this is this is crap. I don't, you know, so I can't relate to it. So we don't even bother interacting with it. But they've kind of changed my my um, opinion because I read that most recent issue that they came out with. Wow. I was just going to ask you that. I love it. I love it. And I'm I'm writing a review of it and I'm having kind of a hard time. I want to get that finished up this weekend. Mm-hmm. But so it's kind of changed my opinion. And I want. I think that we need to incorporate the grapevine into our um, whole thing. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but the first few stories I did, and and yeah, they were good. I still. It just made me think about how they chose the stories they chose. Like they still kind of had the traditional AA feel to them a little bit. Yeah. I so appreciate that they're doing it. I mean, I really do. But it's like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just looking for too much to be bothered by. But it's still. It's like. Why'd they choose this story and not another one? You know, it's like you still kind of had to praise the steps in the process and mention your sponsor. Well, you can ask the executive editor those questions because she's going to be at Austin and she's going to be on a panel for literature. And it would be really interesting to ask her about how they chose those stories and stuff. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Kudos for her for coming. Yeah, I think so, too. I th- I thought the issue I thought it was really good. I was I was pretty surprised. Like like I say I've not been a a, a huge reader of the Grapevine um mm-hmm. because even even when I was a practicing member, I mean it's, I mean when I was a believer praying on my knees type stuff guy, I think even the the re- religiosity of the Grapevine was too much even for me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but um 
but I don't it's, know. I thought the stories when I like when I read it, like the first story, the guy talked about not liking the Lord's Prayer, but they've mm-hmm. done that in the Grapevine before, right? And oh boy, oh yeah, he talked about a lot of stuff in the Big Book that that he doesn't necessarily need, you know. And I liked that. Yeah, um, there was some, yeah. You're right. You're yeah, right. You know, there was some stuff that was kind of that used some criticisms that you don't normally hear, but. I would love to see the letters they get uh, this next month after that issue came out from some of the uh, more traditional members. Yeah, I'm really I'm I'm looking forward to that too, and to see the reaction from our from our community too, because it's kind of it's kind of mixed. You know, when I first read it, I was like blown away by it. I I was almost moved emotionally by it. I thought it was really amazing. But then I talked to someone else, and they said, "Oh, they didn't go far enough. They did this is this is this, right. you, know, you know." But you know, it's a good beginning. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it will be interesting to me because it's almost like gives more validity to us. Right. Exactly. Like, I even mentioned the, it, and I intentionally use the word atheist when I, when it feels like it's proper. I mean, I don't, not every meeting I go to do I go, I'm an atheist. But I mean, I'm trying to use the word because I don't want to, I don't like the stigma around it. So right. I'll be interested to see if that softens the uh, There's pushback. There's a deep emotional need with that I don't think that we always talk about or admit. And I think a lot of us refuse to even acknowledge that it exists. But I think there's a huge need for us to be accepted by the rest of AA. Yeah. I think that yeah. there really is. We feel we want to be accepted by the rest of AA and we feel like we aren't. Right. Because when, when we... Um, I, we brought um, someone from my group. They ordered a bunch of copies of that issue. They brought it to the meeting, and one guy opened it. He didn't even know that Grapevine was doing this, and he looked at it, and he like could not believe what he saw. And he said, "This gives us legitimacy." He said, "Yeah, yeah." Like he he felt like we weren't legitimate. That that's the feeling right. that we have, and right. we got so yeah. It, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Well, again, that's the tone that gets made out to be everywhere too. There's so much group think that goes on, but it does give legitimacy to it and legitimacy that we should have had all along. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do have it. We have it. We just don't feel like it sometimes, or we feel like we need to hear it from the rest of AA because some of right. us have been hurt. Right. I mean, well, I even I even think that's why it was great we had Ward Ewing speak at the first yep. one. I know that was super controversial, but I mean, I really liked that talk. It was great. I still go back and listen it to it too. sometimes. It was a really good talk. In fact, so I think it's, I'll post um, a link to it on this um, podcast for people yeah. to listen to. But the point you made too was that I think we do. We want we want to know that we belong, or that we want to be made to feel that we belong. Which I mean, you know, it's maybe not good to feel that way, but. Some, I think some of the more traditionalists think we want to take over AA and turn it into this and turn it into that. It's, I don't think that's it at all. It's, it's, uh, some of us, some of them tell us just to leave and start our own thing. Right, right. Yeah. Like, now, why I don't mean, you leave and start your own thing? <laughs> well, again, it's, if you look at all the quotes from Bill through the years, he didn't think all this needed to be so dogmatic and like revere the book. And it's, there's yeah. plenty of, uh, there's plenty, I don't know. We, we're supposed to be taking our own inventory and anything that doesn't change and evolve a little bit with time yeah. is get left behind. Well, it'll be fun. It's hard to believe it's just next month. Um, so it's it'll be fun. It'll be there. good to see you. Yeah, it'll be really good to see you too. Yeah. I look forward to meeting uh, lots of people I've seen, too, on our Facebook group. Oh, and I know. That write on AA Beyond Belief. And then I'm wondering if it's people that I knew that I met last time that I didn't remember that I met. Yes. And I know there's going to be a lot of people I met in Santa Monica who they say, gosh, John, I don't ever remember meeting you. I said, oh, I know. But, yeah, I'll know next uh, time. 
Well, I think it took me a while to warm up out in Santa Monica, too. I think the yeah. first day I was a little, like, shy at first. And then by the second night, I was talking with everyone. And then by then it was over. And I was kind of like, God, Ben, why'd you, why didn't you talk to more people to begin with? Now, that's going to be really interesting, to, too, to see. Because I was the same way. I was like, um, I'm not... I'm not always really good at mingling and small talk and, and doing st- and stuff like that. So I might just, I was like hanging out with RJ a lot Yeah, and she always made things easier because she was so, so oh. bubbly and happy and <laughs> especially that weekend. Holy cow. Yeah. But um, it'll be interesting to see this time because I, because I do know so many people, you know, but I know them online, you know, I right. know them right. either by email or Facebook or anyway, it'll right. be interesting to see if I, if I'm uh if I'm just going to want to be hiding somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, uh, everybody will be staying at the same place for the most part too. Yeah. That'll be nice too. Yeah. All right, Ben, I will, I'll talk to you later. Uh, yeah. Nice. Sounds you good. Have John. a nice uh, rest of the weekend. Yeah. You too, man. Appreciate right. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the program. We'll be back again next week uh, speaking with Yvonne H. from the Mainly Agnostics Group in Portland, Maine. Until then, you all take care and be well.